Wow. That's all I can say. Miss Day, I thank you for sharing your gift with us and inviting us into this moment of worship with you to our Lord and God, who is the only one that we serve. So thank you. It is such an honor and a privilege to stand here before all of you. I, I am glad that we sat on the platform today because I have a different perspective than you do. It's just incredible to stand here and sit here and look at your faces. And it's just a reminder that in the middle of the chaos of this season that we're in, that we serve a God who still calls people. He calls us to preparation for ministry, to serve him in communities, and that our world that needs hope, desperately needs hope right now, he is calling you. So if the craziness of this season is causing you to question your call, don't give up now. Allow the voice of God that spoke to you, whether it was softly or loudly, allow that voice of God that spoke to you to remain with you and encourage you in these dark times. Because the Lord is God, as we open singing, our God is great and nothing can stand against him. Amen. Well, this morning, our scripture text comes from James chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, as we have a few more moments in morning before noon. Let me read this text for us. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. I want to preach this morning about joyful endurance. Let us pray. God, we do give you thanks. We give you thanks that you are in this space and that you are in our lives, that you have called us, and humbly, God, we come to a great big God. We submit ourselves to you to hear your voice. And so, God, as I speak, I don't want it to be my voice that's heard, but your voice, your word in this moment, that we might hear it clearly and follow carefully. We give you all the honor, the glory, and praise. It's in your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, my home church was a joy-filled congregation. Every Sunday morning, people greeted one another with what seemed to be, at least to me as a child, genuine joy. We had large choirs that sang enthusiastic, spirit-filled songs, and my pastor didn't just give a casual talk. He really preached every single Sunday, and he wasn't all shout no substance. He masterfully merged biblical teaching and joyful celebration, and the congregation was very responsive. In fact, the congregation was often overwhelmed with uncontainable joy. And as a young boy growing up in the church, I'll be honest with you, I just, I just didn't get it. Even as I became a teenager, I didn't participate in the singing. I didn't have the same joy and excitement about my faith that I was witnessing in others. I didn't feel moved to clap my hands 
raise my arms, say amen. I just did my best to sit still and not, and not get in trouble. And so at the age of 16, I began to imagine a future without the church. I was beginning to think about what my life would be like when I moved out of my parents' house and no one would be there to tell me what to do. And to be honest, I was thinking about walking away from the faith altogether. And one evening I prayed a prayer that literally changed my life. And in this prayer, I gave God an ultimatum. I literally said to God, if I don't experience the joy and excitement that I am witnessing in others, then I'm out of here. And now clearly, right, you guys don't look at me like that, but clearly I needed a healthy dose of humility. And I don't recommend praying that prayer ever, right? Uh, but this is how I know that God responds to imperfect prayers. Because from that point forward, I began to experience increasing joy in my life. It was like a total transformation. I started to participate in the worship service. I bought my first gospel music album. I found myself singing gospel songs at home during my free time. I was reading my Bible more and I was enjoying it. And I was barely able to recognize the person I was becoming. That was the first time I can remember God clearly, clearly answering my prayer. Now, I'm not one of those people who calls everything a miracle. But that evening, God worked a miracle in my life. However, right, however, the miracle may not be what you think. God didn't supernaturally make me more joyful. Instead, he gave me the ability to understand the scriptures better. The Bible came alive to me. I was reading the same stories, the same verses, but God had given me greater understanding. He'd opened my imagination so that the stories and teachings of the Bible became real and practical. In fact, there were days that I couldn't put my Bible down. Something was happening, and I could only describe it as the scriptures were conditioning my heart to experience joy. Now, I didn't have the theological language at the time to express what I was seeing in the Bible. All I knew was that for the first time, I was seeing a God who's holy and perfect, loving, full of grace, compassionate and faithful, a God who's powerful and just. I was seeing a God who's for me, not against me, not just a God who's out there somewhere that may give me good things if I ask right and act right, but I was seeing a God who was strong enough to protect me, a God that loved me deeply and unconditionally, a God that was fully devoted to my well-being and my wholeness. And as I got to know the God I was reading about in Scripture, I experienced joy, real joy. Now this morning, I want to spend a little bit more time unpacking this concept of biblical joy before we get into James, because I believe it's crucial to understanding what James is saying to us today. Now, maybe you've heard this, but there's a difference between joy and happiness. And here's a simple way to think about it. Happiness expires, but joy endures. Happiness expires, joy endures. Happiness is an emotion that's produced by external experiences. It's temporary. It's circumstantial. Happiness depends on what's happening. 
We can experience happiness in response to good things happening in our homes, on our relationships, on our jobs, in our lives. You accomplish something and it makes you happy. An A on an exam can make you happy. A good dinner with good friends can make you happy. Happiness can be quite, quite simple. Sometimes it's shallow and short-lived. But joy is different from that. Joy endures. Joy itself is durable. Joy is a posture of the heart that comes from knowing and trusting the God that we learn about in Scripture. As we learn that God is for us and understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross, that brings us great joy. As we learn that we're fully forgiven and accepted and loved by the God of the universe, that brings us joy. As we grasp the reality of our eternal security in Jesus, that brings us joy. You see, joy is durable because it's based in the unchanging truth of who God is and our position in Him. Joy is durable because it's grounded in the God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. But joy, the joy that we receive from Him, changes every single thing. You see, joy can produce similar emotions and feelings as happiness, but because of its durable nature, joy is often in tension with other feelings and emotions. You see, joy, and I want you to hear this, joy can endure through hardship and tragedy. Depression and joy can coexist. Joy allows for weeping and worship to accompany one another. Joy is the reason why we can praise Him through the storms. Joy makes space for laughter and lament to be present in the same moment. Joy is the undercurrent that accompanies all life experiences and is marked by peace and contentment, this stable sense that everything's going to be all right. Happiness can't do that. It's fickle. It expires easily swayed, it disappears almost as quickly as it arrives. And as we come to know and trust God through the scriptures, we ought to experience durable joy. And this is the kind of joy that James has in mind at the opening of his letter. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. James wants us to see that joy is a hallmark characteristic of the Christian life because of its ability to endure through suffering and hardship, and as he says, trials of any kind. Now, in the Christian community, and you may know this, so bear with me. Now, in the Christian community that James was preaching to was dealing with specific trials. In his letter, James addresses at least two of them, persecution and poverty. The early church was persecuted for their righteousness, just as Jesus said that they would be. Their allegiance to the way of Jesus earned them the disdain of their neighbor and the disgust of the ancient world. As a result, they were persecuted. They were pushed out of Palestine. They were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And James addresses his letter to these persecuted, impoverished, scattered Jewish Christians. And right here at the very beginning, 
In chapter 1, verse 1, James writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. You see, these twelve tribes reflect the historical origins of Israel, a nation formed from the twelve descendants of Israel. But James is using it figuratively to refer to the people of God scattered all over the world. And he addresses his letter to the twelve tribes in the dispersion or the diaspora, a Greek word that literally means scattered, like a farmer would scatter seeds. And I think this helps us to understand the lived experience of these Jewish Christians that James is writing to. As you can imagine, it was difficult for these dislocated believers to rebuild their lives. There was a massive wealth gap in the ancient Roman world and very little opportunity for upward mobility. No one started at the bottom and ended up at the top. The wealthy were landowners and property managers, and the poor were often tenants who rented land from a landlord at an exorbitant price, or they were underpaid day laborers, and they were hoping to just land a full shift. The wealthy held all the power, and although there would be an uprising from time to time, it always led to the further oppression of the poor. And James is writing at a time when social tensions were at an all-time high. The poor felt helpless, homeless, and these Jewish Christians that James is writing to scattered throughout the nations were homeless. It's to these Christians that James says these hard words and maybe perplexing and sometimes confusing words for us to read. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials, and they knew about trials, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. James is reminding these persecuted Christians living in poverty of the nature of joy. It's durable. I think it's important to note that since James is not writing to a particular church, as Paul does in some of his letters, that James' letter is written in a very general way. And while he addresses some particular problems, he writes in a way that the letter could be picked up and read by followers of Christ in any generation and applied to their lives. And so when we pick up this book of James today and we read it in 2020, we can hear James saying to us today, my brothers and my sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. And when we hear James say trials of any kind, we can throw all the pain and suffering and hardship and the trials of 2020, and we can pile them into this text. And we can hear James reminding us in the midst of this pandemic of the nature of joy. It's durable. You see, in this letter, James, and I love this about James, he's positioning himself as a pastor to followers of Christ whether they're living in the first century being persecuted and subjected to poverty, or whether they're living in the 21st century navigating elevated political tensions while living through a global pandemic, James is positioning himself as our pastor. And James' pastoral tone continues throughout this entire letter. In fact, in the final chapter, he writes, Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient until it receives its early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, 
for the coming of the Lord is near. It's like James is saying to us, I know this season is hard. I know this is not the way life is supposed to be. I see you. I see your suffering. I see your discomfort with the disorder of the world. Hold on. Continue to trust the Lord. He's not forgotten about you. The wait may feel long, but the coming of the Lord in all of his glory is near. Endure with joy. And this isn't a pep talk that James is giving us. He's not gathering us in the locker room at halftime in order to motivate us to finish strong. James wants us to see that God really is present in persecution and poverty, and God is really present in these tense political climate of our times and the pandemic we find ourselves in the midst of. God is present in our trials, and God wants to use it. God wants to use all of it to grow us, to sanctify us into the people that he's calling us to be. The thing I love about James' approach to suffering is he doesn't encourage us to hold on and just wait for the sweet by and by when the morning comes. Now, I'm guilty of this, so I'm not being critical of anyone that does this, and I can't tell you how many times I've read James 1, verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. I can't tell you the number of times I've read that passage like it was some kind of remedy to my suffering. Yes, I believe heaven's going to be worth the wait. And yes, I believe God has a better place for us. I believe that if we could only taste the glory, we could take the pain. But that's not the primary lens through which the Bible encourages us to view suffering. In fact, James wants us to shift our perspective on suffering by helping us see the hand of God. James wants us to see the hand of God in the midst of suffering. In our Western culture, we tend to view suffering as something to be avoided. And when we suffer and it's unavoidable, we want to hide it, medicate it, defeat it by positive thinking, or process our way through it as quickly as possible. And we don't make a lot of space for grieving, mourning, and lamenting. We don't think to simply sit in our suffering like Job and see the hand of God and declare, I know my Redeemer lives. Rather, we fake it till we make it. In fact, we've been wearing masks since way before 2020. We've mastered the duplicity of pretending that everything is okay, even when asked how we're doing. We don't respond honestly. We respond culturally, the way we've been conditioned to respond. I'm doing well. I'm fine. I'm good. Our response is evidence that our culture just doesn't have a category for suffering. And as a result, we fail to see that our hurting makes us human, and we don't make space for suffering as a normal part of the human experience. We want our hurting to be quickly replaced with happiness or pain or to be overwhelmed with pleasure. We want our lament to be turned to laughter. We want to medicate our mourning. Because of this distorted perspective, we rarely slow down enough to sit and to see. To sit 
and to see the hand of God in the midst of suffering. You see, James offers us a different perspective on suffering. James wants us to see that God doesn't waste anything, not one thing. God doesn't waste it, even our pain. Therefore, we rejoice in suffering, hardship, and in pain. Now, I love the imagery that's in this text. If you look back at James chapter 1, verse 2, James says, My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Now this word endurance means to remain under the weight of something, to bear up a heavy load. Now in the strength and conditioning world, like the weightlifting world, you often hear this phrase, time under tension. It's a phrase that's used to refer to the length of time that a muscle is under strain during a particular exercise. Now the tendency when working out, and I've been there, so I'm not being judgmental, but the tendency when working out is to assume that the more weight you lift, the more muscle you'll build, and the stronger you will become. And so when you go in the gym, you often see people load up a barbell with more weight than they can handle and because it's too heavy, they settle for slinging it around with sloppy form in order to complete six or eight or however many reps they can squeeze out. And while this may satisfy the ego, it does very little to build muscle because slinging around weight gives you very little time under tension. I'm guilty of this myself. Every time I work out, I have to remind myself that a better way to build muscle is by performing slower controlled reps with a manageable weight loaded on the barbell in proper form because this gives you time under tension and there's a bonus to it. It helps you avoid injury as well. What James is communicating by this word endurance in this text is that time under tension matters because it builds our faith. I want you to know that God is not wasting the weight of 2020. God's not wasting it. The testing of our faith is producing maturity and completeness. We're being equipped for the good work that God has prepared for us to do. Therefore, let us be a people who joyfully endure suffering and hardship and trials of any kind, not as a way of suppressing the reality of our struggles, but as a way of sitting and seeing the mighty hand of God in the midst of it. You see, the God we serve has proven that he's able to make a way out of no way. He's able to bring order out of chaos. He's water in the wilderness. He's bread in the desert. He's hope to the hurting. He's healing. He's our counselor. He's our comforter. He's our king. He's the king of kings. He's our peace. He's our hope. He's our joy. And that's why I can stand here today and say with confidence that joy endures through hardship and tragedy, that depression and joy can and do coexist. Joy allows for weeping and worship to accompany one another. Joy is the reason why we can praise him through the storm. Joy makes space for laughter and lament to be present in the same moment. Joy is the undercurrent that accompanies all life experiences. It's marked by a peace and contentment and the stable sense that everything's going to be all right.
And so as we move towards the end of 2020 and into the new year, whatever it holds for us, Asbury, let us endure with joy because we know that God is using this season to prepare us to glorify him even more in the next season. To God be the glory. Amen.